So this week we're going to continue on with our uh, series that I've been doing. It might be a little bit too much now. Um, the series that I've been doing called uh, Christ Crosses Culture. Um, and you'll remember that this is about um, the way in which culture comes into Christianity and can often affect us without us realising. And so really what I aim to do is to just talk about the way that we might have been affected by our culture and not realised it, and then to try to look at, well, what's, what does the Bible say about, about it all and, and what is the way that we should be living? Is there a way that we're living that we shouldn't be and we haven't really realised it? Last week uh, we talked about forgiveness and you will have, uh, well, if you were here and heard the message, obviously it was a bit of a challenging message to forgive people um, particularly when our culture tells us, you know, all about our rights and about getting revenge and getting our own back, uh, that can be really difficult. It can be really difficult to forgive people. This week, as you can see, we're talking about selfishness and selflessness. Um, I think that this is a pretty natural progression from forgiveness because forgiveness is hard, as we all know, but forgiveness is probably a lot harder when we're trying to forgive someone that we don't really like. It might be easier to forgive someone that we like because, you know, it's just, we like them. So, you know, we can get past it. But when it's someone that we don't really like, it can obviously be a lot more difficult. And then, of course, you can say, well, what if it's someone that, uh, that you hate? And then you have this question that we should be considering, all of us as Christians all the time. Um, is it okay to not like people? Are we supposed to not like people? It's a bit of a weird question, and I've been posing this question to some of my students recently in grade 12. just asked them recently, I said, what is Christianity? What does it mean when someone says that they're a Christian? What, what are they actually saying? And that's probably a pretty good question that we should ask ourselves everybody every now and then, because I think that we get around saying stuff like that, and words can lose their meaning. And to be honest, I think that if you said that you're a Christian in a bunch of different areas to a bunch of different people, they'd all think different things. And so it is important sometimes to try to define these things. Um, does being a Christian mean that you're perfect? Obviously it doesn't. You know, have you ever had someone that's told you that, you know, that they're a Christian and then you kind of, you've had some questions about it? You've been like, really? You know, because, you're, because their actions, they might not really demonstrate that. But then, of course, our actions don't always demonstrate it either. So we can't exactly getting around, get around judging people like that. I mean, maybe you feel like Paul does in Romans... When he says, why do I always do the things that I hate? Why don't I do the things that I want to do, but instead I end up doing the things that I don't want to do? Perhaps you've been in that situation before. But when I ask my grade 12 students what, what Christianity is, this is a bit noisy, isn't it? It's a pity. Oh, well. Let's try this instead. How's that? Is that better? No, not at all. There we go. Um, when I ask them, they gave me a couple of answers. The first answer, the most obvious answer that they gave me was this. They said, being Christian means believing in God. And of course, for me, then this raises a whole bunch of questions because I, my first question is, well, which God? What God are you talking about? We call our God God, but there's plenty of other religions that call their God God as well. So which God are we actually talking about there? And then not even when we talk about different religions, what about those people that kind of sit on the fringe those denominations, well, I wouldn't necessarily call them denominations that sit on the fringe of Christianity like the Mormons or Jehovah's Witness, stuff like that, like where do they fit? Because they would even claim the same God as us a lot of the time. But the more you know about them, the more you realise that there's some really big differences in who that God actually is. So obviously, just saying that you believe in God, that's not really necessarily it. Okay? 
we probably need to decide together what God we're actually talking about. And I don't think this is a, I don't think this is a, a harmful thing to do every now and then to, as a, as a group of people that all believe the same thing to actually talk about, well, what, what is that that we believe? So the God that we're talking about is the God of the Bible, the God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So that's the God of Abraham and Isaac and um, they called, called Yahweh, the great I Am, the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit and Jesus who was fully man and fully God, all of these things that you might have known about. And you can see we've started to add some clarification in and all of a sudden the God that we're talking about is different to the the God that the Jehovah's Witnesses are talking about because they don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God and God at the same time. They believe it separately. But then, of course, there is this verse in the Bible that says belief is not enough because even the demons believe. So we need to consider that. Belief, there's, it's more than just belief. So then I asked my students again, well, what, what else is there? And they said, you have to follow God, not just believe God, but follow him. But there's a problem with this as well. Because I try to follow him all the time and I often fail at that. So what happens when we are trying to follow God and then we fail at it? And what about people that seem to do a much better job of following God than we do? You know, those people that aren't Christians or are part of different religions or just or atheists, agnostic or whatever, and they seem to do a much better job of following God than any of us do. Obviously, actions are important, but actions don't necessarily mean the whole thing. Belief and actions are two parts of it, but that's not the full equation. Like I said, I asked this question and eventually we got to this point in the class where someone talked about uh, loving God. And we get to that famous uh, passage that hopefully, well, most people would know, even a lot of people that aren't Christians would know this from Matthew 22:36. And I'll just read, you can read along with me there. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this word love comes in. We've got belief, we've got actions, we've got following, but then we've got the word love. And the word love is pretty confusing for us these days. You know... I think that Hollywood and um, movies and songs and books and magazines and all of these things from culture have actually kind of made love a bit of a confusing term for us to get. A dictionary doesn't really seem to be fully equipped with dealing with all the different facets of love. In fact, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves when he talked about four different kinds of love and they're all called love but they're four different things. As you would know, there's many different things that you can mean when you say the word love. For instance, the way that a husband loves his wife is different to the way that he loves his favourite football team. Hopefully, (laughs) hopefully it's different. And then the way that you love your team is different to the way you love your kids or the way you love your friends or your hobbies or your extended family or your mother-in-law or your father-in-law and, of course, God. There's all different types of love, but we use the same word to encompass all of it. We hear teenagers, I hear teenagers all the time, oh, I love this song. You know, but then two weeks later, they don't love the song anymore. So obviously, that's a really different kind of love than the sort of love we're talking about with God. And they obviously don't mean they have some sort of romantic affection for the song. That wouldn't even make sense. Our love for our family is sometimes completely out of our control. They might bug us a lot, but for some reason, we keep on loving them. 
I'm not really sure exactly a lot of the time, but we do. However, our love for our in-laws doesn't come naturally because we didn't grow up with them in the same way. So it's something that happens over time. Hopefully, again. And none of these is the same as romantic love, obviously. Romantic love, however, has kind of hijacked the definition. And so now anytime anyone says the word love, they need to sort of add this extra... Oh, I didn't mean it like that. I don't mean... You know, when I say I love you, I don't mean I love you. I just mean, yeah, I love you, you know? And it can get really confusing. But the truth is we're told, not just in Matthew, but in Mark and in Luke as well, three of the four Gospels all tell this story. They all tell it a little bit differently, but they've all got this story, this event when Jesus superseded the old commandments and turned them into just two great commandments, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. In the account from Mark, the man that Jesus was talking to actually replied after the commandments and said this, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of your heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbour as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. See, in the Old Testament, the old law that these guys are talking about, that the scribe is talking about, is when we've done something, we need to offer a sacrifice to atone for that. But now, this new system is in. This system of love has come in and it's come in and it's changed it. See, the distinction made is that loving is different to the religious, the religious practice. The sacrifice is our religion, but the scribe says if you love God and love others, that's taken place of the old sacrifices because, importantly, the ultimate sacrifice has been made. Christ's death has freed us to be able to love other people. Previously, however, this is all done through religious stuff. You can imagine back in the day, and this is a little bit hypothetical, but there may have been this tendency sometimes to sin and sacrifice. Like, if you can sacrifice a lamb, this, like I say, it's a hypothetical, but if you can sacrifice an animal, why wouldn't you have a whole binging day of sin and then sacrifice a lamb at the end of the day? You know, you kind of get away with it, you might think. And to be honest, we can think about sin this way now. Hopefully over the last couple of weeks, when we've heard Sonnegel talking about sin, we don't think of it this way anymore. But I remember growing up, I totally used to think like this. I used to think, well, I can just confess, can't I? And then I'd be forgiven. So I can pretty much do whatever I want. Like I can sin and then I can confess and then everything is going to be fine again. You see, that's a good question. Why shouldn't we do this? Sometimes it, it can feel like we can do whatever we want and ask forgiveness later. It was always one of the things that confused me about confession. Catholic confession, Protestant confession, anything at all, it seems like it's just wiped clean. But obviously I was neglecting a pretty important part of it, which was repentance. Repentance is to turn away and to try not to do it again. That's a very different mentality. And I was actually missing the most important part. The most important part of this to realise is that thinking this way isn't born out of love of God. Thinking this way is born out of love of yourself. And loving yourself is your problem. It's my problem. Loving yourself is... A huge problem. When I was uh, a teenager, I got a bit of a story. When I was a teenager or in my late teens and early 20s, I kind of went through a gradual process of discipleship. This is one of the reasons that 
just I have to make sure I don't get too frustrated when I'm discipling somebody else because I knew it. I know it took a very long time with me to make any sort of changes in my life. I probably, I mean, I got baptized when I was uh, 17, and to be honest, the worst five or six years of my life, as far as my behaviour, came after that point, not before it. Um, there was a there was a long process of discipleship where I talked to a, a lot of people particularly uh, an old teacher friend of mine and my boss, who were really supportive in what must have been a really frustrating five or six years of discipleship where my change was really, really, really gradual. But there was a change. And the shift was going from just confessing Christ to actually loving him. And in the loving him came the following of what he said. But the truth is, um, for, a, for a long time, I used to drink quite a lot. Uh, this is after I was baptised, but I, I kind of lived in this weird paradox, which some of you might realise that you, you're living in now. You live in this paradox of believing one thing and doing something completely different. Anyway, so I used to very often on weekends go and get really drunk. Like I'd drink a lot and I'd get drunk and I would do it to party and have a good time and whatever. And I remember one of the people that I randomly ended up talking to about it was Sondi. Now, Sondi didn't really have much to do with me at school. He taught woodwork, and I'm a drama kid, so those two usually abuse each other. Well, the woodwork abuses the drama. The drama just cries in the corner. <laughs> and he still does it now to kids, so he's very mean. Um, but for some reason, when I was like 20, I found myself sitting in, in Sondi's office, I don't know how, talking about drinking. And I said to him, essentially, I said, how much can I drink before it's a sin? But I didn't phrase it like that because I, did, I wanted to trick him into saying what I wanted him to say. So I kind of took him on this process of getting the answer that I wanted. Some of you have probably done this before, where you, you go into a situation, you know you want a certain answer, and so you ask the right questions to get the answer you want. Most of the time to justify something you're doing which you shouldn't be doing. But so I said to him, first of all, Sonigel, do you think that drinking's a sin? He said, no, I don't think that having a, a drink, that drinking alcohol is a sin. I said, good. Um, you realise that sometimes you might be able to have three drinks and it doesn't affect you at all. And then other times, if you've got an empty stomach, you might have three drinks and it goes straight to your head. He's like, yeah, no, I, I, I realise that that happens. And then I said, well, what is it really that you think God has a problem with with drinking? He said, oh, I think it's the loss of control. When we lose control of ourselves, then that means we stop worshipping. We stop being able to really to be worship, worshipping God. I said, okay, good, because I'd led him the way that I wanted to lead him now, so I was able to get the answer that I was ready for. And so I said, so, really, if I have a couple of drinks and I accidentally get a bit tipsy, but not really drunk, so I'm not really out of control, then that's totally fine, isn't it? And he said, you're asking all the wrong questions. And I got really frustrated at this point, right, because I expected a certain answer and I didn't get it. But, you know, he was kind of getting all Jesus on the Pharisees, where he asked them a question back, and, and they get all confused. This was what was happening to me. Because he said, <clears throat> you're asking the wrong question. You're asking this question, how close can I get to sin before it's a sin? How much can I drink before it's a sin? And I said, yeah, I guess that's what I'm asking. And then I left. <laughs> and I didn't like it. I didn't like the answer that he gave me. But... Funnily enough, I still remember that conversation like six years later or something and it was a one-off, random, 15-minute conversation. Like, why do I remember that? I remember it because it actually stuck in my head because it was true. You see, I wanted to get as close 
to the boundary as I possibly could. I was asking the question, how much can I do something before I get in trouble? And doing this pretty much means that I was seeing God as a judge, not as a father. See, God is a judge who's just ready to get me into trouble. And I don't want to get into trouble, but I want to do everything that I want to do. It's kind of like when you see a cop on the side of the road and you're like, I reckon I could probably do five over and he's not going to ping me for it. Have you ever done that? You're like, I'm not going to slow down to, to the speed limit. Why would I do that? No one drives a speed limit. But I will go five over because it's a hundred zone, so I'll be fine. Right? It's going as far and even going a little bit further and still being able to justify what you want to do. See, the problem is, <coughs> doing this, I was loving myself. I wasn't loving God. I was loving myself. As long as my heart was asking, how much can I do before it's a sin? It was all a sin. As long as I was focusing on myself, trying to get for myself what I thought was pleasure as opposed to what God wanted and focusing on God, it was all wrong because my motivations were wrong. I ask a question sometimes to my students uh, when they come and talk to me about some moral dilemma or ethical issue that they're going through or something. I say, have you checked your motivations? We must check our motivations. Often, this will make decisions which you think are really, really difficult and, and hard way, way easier. It's much easier to sort through it. When you get down to the why of what you want to, of, of why you want to do something, instead of just whether or not it's right or wrong, it can actually help you to realize that your heart is in the wrong place. See, the why of me wanting to drink was completely self-centered. So before I even began drinking, I'd already done the wrong thing. I was already in the wrong. The heart is where the real action takes place. Everything else is just a consequence of the heart. Your actions are, already, are, are the things that follow from the heart. The heart is where the sinning occurs. The heart is where we say, your will be done or I'm doing it my way. Really, uh, a random conversation that I had in the middle of this week in the staff room was with Nathan Hitsky when he just said, I don't know, I can't really remember how it came up, he just said, I think that song My Way by Frank Sinatra is one of the most evil songs of the last hundred years. And, I mean, I didn't know the song, and I was like, okay, sweet, whatever. And I walked away, okay? Um, but as soon as I wrote this, literally, when I wrote this, I thought of that conversation that I'm doing it my way. I thought of that conversation, I decided to look up the lyrics. And the lyrics... They shocked me. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking Frank Sinatra. I mean, this, how, how, I don't know, maybe you're not thinking this if you know who he is. You're thinking, oh, of course, he's evil, but I don't know. I've got no idea if he's evil or not. But when I looked up the lyrics, I was pretty shocked, particularly by the last verse. This is the last verse. For what is man? What has he got? If not himself, then he has naught. To say the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and I did it my way. See, this is complete independence and self-sufficiency away from God. This is saying, I'm doing it my way. I'm not going to bend the knee. I will not do it the way that somebody else wants me to do it. I will do it my way. The, that line about not kneeling puts it in great perspective for us when we sing songs like, I will fall on my knees. We can see it. it's a huge contradiction here. Now, an interesting and tragic fact about this song when I was researching it is that this song is the most frequently played song at funerals in Britain. 
How weird is that? You think about just the reality of what's going on at a funeral and that they would play this song. That's pretty sad that at the end of someone's life, we all celebrate their autonomy and lack of submission to God when now that they've passed away, unfortunately for them, they've got no choice in the matter. It doesn't make any difference. As I was doing more research on this song, I actually found out this really weird fact about this song. My Way is a popular karaoke song around the world to the point that it has, become, it has been reported to cause numerous incidents of violence and homicides amongst drunkards in bars in the Philippines, referred to in the media as the My Way Killings. How weird is that? Like it's actually got a name. <laughs> the My Way Killings. People know what this is. In perfect irony, we can see what doing it our way actually does. <laughs> you know? Because there's two people in a bar, both of them singing my way, they're going to butt heads and obviously pull out guns. Because, we read on, on May 29th, 2007, a 29-year-old karaoke singer of my way at a bar in San Mateo Rizal was shot dead as he sang the tune, allegedly by the bar security guard who was arrested after the incident. According to the reports, the guard complained that the young man's rendition was off-key. And when the victim refused to stop singing, the guard pulled out a 38 caliber pistol and shot the man dead. Vocalising the tune can be dangerous not only for the singer, but for critics in the vicinity. According to one newspaper report, when the friend of an off-duty police officer belted out the song at a bar, the officer reacted to the negative comments of a nearby patron by pulling out his gun. The officer's family later decided never to play the song at family gatherings. <laughs> That's a good choice, I think. Butch... Al Barakin, the owner of the Centre for Pop, a Manila-based singing school, believes that the lyrics of My Way increase the violence. The lyrics evoke feelings of pride and arrogance in the singer, as if you're somebody when you're really nobody. It covers up your failures. That's why it leads to fights. That's what he says. And there have been at least six My Way killings in the last ten years. I don't know. That's a weird stat. Can you imagine, like, that's your... <laughs> I wrote that song. Yeah, I wrote that song that leads to people killing each other. That is, like, I mean, I think a lot of the time when we think about the people that are, the, the music that's really hurting people, we think Marilyn Manson, these people that are, you know, confess Satanists and everything. But here we see the working out of what is at the essence, to be honest, of Satanism, which is complete selfishness. We, we see the essence of that working itself out in a really random, unexpected way that people would kill each other. I was just shocked. It was weird. The last verse of the song, the way it celebrates the lack of bended knee, reminds me of one of my favourite passages from a book called The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis. And once again, it's a Lewis book, so I recommend it to you. You should check it out. It's amazing. I won't refer to scripture this time, though, uh, like last week, by accident. Um, and it's actually quoting, so in this book, it actually quotes another book, which is a great book um, by uh, Milton called Paradise Lost. He says... This character says in the book, Milton was right. The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. I love that quote. It's so true. You know, in Milton's Paradise Lost, it tells a story of Satan being thrown out of heaven. And that's really what it's about. Satan didn't want to bend the knee to anybody. And that's what it... That's what happened. The Great Divorce is about people going up to heaven, like literally going up to heaven, looking around and saying, I don't want to be here because I'm not in charge, and then leaving again, essentially. That was what I was doing 
for a while, there was something that I wanted to hold on to, something that I wanted to keep, even though it was often making me miserable. I wanted to do it my way. <coughs> so what are those commandments? <coughs> what is a Christian? Someone who loves God and loves other people. To be honest, there's nothing in there about loving ourselves, although we know it says love your neighbours as yourself. What God, what Jesus said there, he's taking it for granted that you love yourself. Okay, He's not saying make sure you go out there and love yourself as well. He's saying you already love yourself, so love other people as well. Before you jump to any conclusions, do I mean, am I saying that we're supposed to hate ourselves? Of course I'm not saying that. But if anybody of you did start thinking like that, I'd like you to just have pause for a second and have a think about where that thought actually came from. Just the immediate reaction to stop and say, I think he's telling me I've got to hate myself. I don't want to do that. That immediate reaction is actually a selfish reaction that we have because we don't want to be selfless. We don't want to love other people all of the time. Why do we jump to those thoughts? Oh, he's just beating us up up there. He's just, you know, telling us what to do all the time. You know, I'm not. I'm saying what Jesus said, and that is to love God and to love everybody else as you love yourself. You might remember... From last week, I had this question, can we do one of these things without the other one? Can we claim that we do one and not do the other? Is it possible to love God and hate people? Can that tension exist within our hearts and minds? Can Jesus live in our hearts while it's still infested with idols and the main idol is just us? I mean, you know, it's not like when you become a Christian overnight, you just love everyone and everyone's great and you've got no problems with everyone. That's not what I'm saying. The question is, though, what do we do with that fact that we still struggle with it? Obviously, just because we love God and struggle with our own, we we still struggle with our own selfishness. Our pride sets itself up in competition and battle against God and against everybody else. If we truly do it our own way, we choose ourselves over God. The sign that I think of Christianity, of our love for Jesus, is not whether or not we sin, but what we do afterwards are we willing to forgive are we willing to confess and repent and to work harder at following christ asking for help and admitting our weaknesses or do we make excuses for what we did do we justify it to the point where it's not a sin anymore do we blame the other person and claim our human rights that quote that i referenced earlier from lewis uh, is brilliant at discussing this because he goes on to say in the much larger thing The choice of every lost soul can be expressed in the words, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. There is always something they insist on keeping, even at the price of misery. There is always something they prefer to joy, that is, to reality. You see it easily enough in a spoiled child that would sooner miss its play and its supper than say it was sorry and be friends. You call it the sulks, but in adult life, it has a hundred fine names, revenge and injured merit and self-respect and tragic greatness and proper pride. See, we come up with these really nice adult words, these really nice ways to cover what we hate seeing in other people, what we get irritated when we see in our kids. We come up with beautiful, eloquent eloquent words to cover up what is ultimately the greatest sin, pride, which is the sin of choosing ourselves over God and other people. This series is called Christ Crosses Culture, so how does this connect with culture? Well, our culture is a culture of doing it our way. Our independence, our self-reliance, it's crucial to us. 
We say, at the end of the day, you're the only one that's not going to hurt you, so make sure you look after yourself. And other cliched self-help therapies. The internet is full of these things. They're everywhere. You see them on people's Facebook walls all the time. And they always sound kind of nice. Here's a couple. First of all, love yourself first and everything else falls into line. See, these things, they kind of sound good. And then when you start to think about it, if you really loved yourself first, do you really think everything else would fall into line? If you're loving yourself first, you're not really necessarily going to be able to love other people because if you start to love yourself and focus on yourself, it becomes a never-ending thing. There's always something else that you want. There's always something else that you think you need. This is a little cute one. What matters most is how you see yourself. Once again, isn't that lovely? We go, oh, I put that on my Facebook wall. Is that really what matters the most? What about the way God sees you? Maybe you've met someone that is like a little kitten and they see themselves as a lion. Isn't that frustrating? When you see someone that gets around like a lion, well, not like a real lion, obviously, that would be frustrating, that would be weird, but in general, you see someone who's just rating themselves way more than they should. And then there's this one, I mean, I'm not a parent, but parents need to fill a child's bucket of self-esteem so high that the rest of the world can't poke enough holes to drain it dry. Once again, it sounds lovely, but as a teacher, sometimes those buckets need to be drained. <laughs> Seriously. Sometimes they've been filled up so high and the kid is just up themselves. They, they can't be corrected. And that's such a problem when you can't be corrected. Oh, my self-esteem is so high that I will not be correct. I will not be told that I'm wrong. See, this is the way that culture feeds this stuff to us. And I seriously think we repost, you know, I'm using the Facebook terminology, we repost this stuff. We adopt this into our lives and we don't really think about it. I'm not meaning to downplay the fact that some people really do, unfortunately, hate themselves. And they really do need to develop more confidence, whatever that means. But hopefully you can see that loving yourself, if you actually do it, will only turn you from a depressed person into a proud person. And in a funny way, a depressed person is still a proud person because they're obsessed with themselves and how depressed they are. If you've ever met someone who really is in love with themselves, you'll realise it's not really that much of a great achievement. The confidence that they need to develop, if it's not found in God and if it's not outworked into loving other people, will just be a limited source. It will terminate on themselves and they'll turn in on themselves and they'll become self-obsessed. My point in this sermon is to discuss what is at the core of Christianity. What is it? It's not going to church, although obviously that's part of it. It's not just observing some religious practices. You may have heard that saying, Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship. Sorry, it's a religion. If you actually look at what the definitions of religions is, Christianity is right in there, okay? But what we mean is it's more than a religion. We believe that it's real. It's not just following some rules. It's about love. Love for God and love for other people. You'll notice that doing this doesn't actually ignore our actions. Our actions do matter. Our actions are the fruit of our relationship and our love for God. In John 14, Jesus says, He that loves me will keep my word. That's a, just to pause on that verse and to think about that. He that loves me will keep my word. 
If we don't have fruit, what does that mean? The fruit demonstrates itself in the way that we love other people. When we love Christ, our actions will follow. We will love other people. The parable of the Good Samaritan directly follows in Luke 10 after Jesus talks about how loving your neighbour. The Good Samaritan is one of those parables that I think that we've heard so many times that we kind of forget about it. But when I read it again, it just floored me, to be honest. It has incredible relevance. So let's connect the dots. Jesus says, love God and love your neighbour. Do this and you will live. As in, do this and you're a Christian. Do this and you have life from God. You are saved. And then the question is asked by some smart aleck who's trying to get out of doing anything, who is my neighbour? And we hear the parable. You can read along with me. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road and when he saw him he passed on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Jesus said, Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who fell among the robbers? And the man said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Just think that that's an important thing to ring in our heads. That's the story that Jesus told. And then he said, you go and do likewise. This guy was trying to get out of trouble. He just got told he had to love his neighbour. And so he said, well, who's my neighbour? Hoping that it was just going to be his neighbour, probably his next door neighbour. That would have been easier because it's just one person. But then Jesus said, it's anybody. It's anybody. And you go and do likewise. This is really difficult, right? That person that you don't like, that person you feel as though you might even have a right to dislike, to not care about, to wish ill against them, they are your neighbour. This is confronting. This is challenging. It should be challenging. When you think about someone right now that you don't want to love, that you don't want to help, that has harmed you or hurt you in a way that you haven't forgiven or that you don't want to even think about, Jesus has said, go and do likewise. A neighbour is everyone. Love God, love everyone else. Stop serving ourselves. And by their fruit they shall be known. If you're having trouble loving someone, I think that's pretty understandable. It's not an excuse, but it's understandable. We're human When we become a Christian, it's not like everything just changes and we can love everyone all of a sudden. My encouragement would be, though, don't stop. Don't stop trying. Don't give up just because it's hard. Or don't make an excuse for yourself and say you don't have to do it. Press into God and focus on Him and try to learn more about Him. Spend time in prayer asking for God to change your heart, to give you compassion so that you can show mercy mercy on your enemies. See, God is the one that changes our hearts. There's very little that we can do on our own in regards to that. 
God changes our hearts. So ask him to. Ask him to change yours. Jesus says numerous times in this order, follow me and love people. Love me and love people. And what I think one of the things he's getting at there is that loving people comes from our love of God. Love God first. The more you love God, the more you'll love other people. Because the more you love God, the more you'll follow his commands. So you'll try to love other people. So you'll stop being obsessed with yourself. Jesus says, if you want to live, you have to die. I mean, have we really thought about how intense that death to self actually is? Loving God can sometimes be an abstract idea. And our deceitful hearts can often tell us that we've got it nailed when we don't. Loving people is obvious and it's quite painful a lot of the time. If you truly love God, you will want to try to love other people. You will still make mistakes, obviously, plenty of them probably. But when you do, you'll repent, ask for forgiveness and move on trying to love people. The church is meant to be known by its fruit. The fruit that bears itself in the way that we love and serve each other. I think this has got to be one of the most confronting things that we need to deal with as a church, and I don't just mean as the project, I mean the church as a whole needs to consider the fact that we're not really seen to be that loving by the outside world. We're not seen to be that caring. You know, there was a time that churches, with the money that came in, they would go and build a hospital and they'd offer care to people. And obviously this sort of thing still happens. But one of the really dangerous things that can happen to us, to anybody, is that we just focus on loving God and maybe loving each other because that's easy. But we don't really think about what it actually means to love our neighbours. And like, let's just start at our physical real life neighbours. How do you love them? You wouldn't even know. Well, I speak for myself. I wouldn't even know if my neighbours were going through something and they'd appreciate a cooked meal. I wouldn't even know. You know? I mean, we can take that loving your neighbour thing and we can say, oh, well, the parable of the Good Samaritan says your neighbour's everybody and so we can start ignoring our real neighbours. Well, that would be taking it the wrong way as well. The church should be known by the way that it loves people. You should be known by the way that you love people. The Good Samaritan didn't just help his neighbour to hospital. He didn't just throw him some loose change or call him a taxi. See, this is the sort of thing we often do to make ourselves feel good. I just put some money in the tithe thing and someone will do something nice with it and that's me done. I'm sorted out. See, the Good Samaritan helped him up. He spent time bandaging him. He gave him his own animal, which meant that he had to walk to wherever the nearest inn was. He then, from the looks of things, stayed overnight with a complete stranger looking after him. And then he gave the innkeeper more money to continue the care. This is revolutionary care. This is not just throwing a bit of money at a homeless guy on a street. This is so much bigger than that. This is truly loving your neighbour, caring more about them than you care about yourself. Think about it. You know, in this parable, the Samaritan was obviously going somewhere. He was on a journey. He was walking along a road. That journey took a two-day pause to help somebody else. Wherever he was going, that whole 
point stopped for two days because he helped a complete stranger and stayed overnight with a complete stranger. We might not actually have the chance to do something as full on, not necessarily, but there's people all around us that you should be loving, that we should be loving. Your irritating little brother or sister, your parents, your annoying work colleague, that person in your class that's told you they hate you, your teachers, teachers, your boss. It doesn't matter. God wants you to love them. If you don't, if you refuse flat out, you have to be willing to realise what that means. You have to be willing to live in that contradiction. The contradiction to say that you follow Jesus, but then you choose not to keep his commandments purposefully, willingly. And 1 John has something pretty important to say about that decision. 1 John 2, 4-6 Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. That's what Christianity is. It's knowing God loving God and following God, walking in the same way that Jesus walked, walking with love and compassion for each other. One of the things that just baffles me about myself and about people that I meet everywhere, this is the human condition, is how easily we slip into selfishness. Like straight up, we can spend days and days without thinking about another person and we don't even realise we're doing it. We can be injured by someone. Someone can offend us and we think that we have a right to not forgive them. We have a right to hold on to that, to become bitter, angry, or to just ignore them and not treat them as a human at all. It's, it's a revolution and it should actually revolutionise the way that you think and the way that you care about people. It should do that for all of us. In the book Me Christianity, C.S. Lewis talks about how difficult this is to all of a sudden love people. And he says, Jesus tells us to love your neighbour as yourself. What he does is he assumes you love yourself, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be best friends with your neighbour, okay? Please don't feel as though you have to go out and become best friends with everyone. That would be very difficult, be very draining, and it's pretty much impossible. In fact, you don't even necessarily have to be friends, there's a difference between hating someone and not being friends with them, right? There's acquaintances that you, that you like, that you can talk to, but you're not going to go and hang out at their house every night. See, I think a lot of the time we take this to an extreme way too far, and we're like, I can't do that, so I'm not going to do anything. You're not expected to think that what they do is amazing or condone what they do, okay? You can think about it for yourself. You love yourself, but you still get disgusted with some of the things that you do. So obviously that's not what it's about either. The way that you love yourself is this weird, unconditional love where you actually want to help yourself. You actually want the best for yourself, even though you disappoint yourself all the time. You might even beat yourself up a bit, but in the end of the day, you can't really stop loving yourself. For people that do, like I said before, that think that or say that they don't love themselves, that they hate themselves in a weird way, that action is still going on where they're still focused on themselves. Everybody wants to be happy. So if the way that you love yourself is to try to make yourself happy, maybe the best way to think about loving other people is 
What can I do that's going to make them happy? What can I do that's going to bless them? How can I serve them? doesn't mean you need to drive to their house every day and say, what can I do? You see someone that needs some help, you help them out. This is really difficult. But my prayer is that over the week, maybe if you go to community group and go through the questions, um, if you think about it, maybe read the parable, that you'll start to realise that loving people is what it's about. Loving God and loving people is what it's about. And if you know that there's people that you don't love, that you haven't forgiven, that you struggle with, that you don't want to talk to, that you don't like, that needs to be sorted out. God wants you to sort that out. Will you stand with me and we'll pray and then we'll finish up. Jesus, we know that when we choose to follow you, that everything doesn't change overnight. But we know that you give us the strength to change and that you want us to. So I pray for everybody here, I pray for myself, that you will pinpoint for us people that we need to love, people in our everyday lives that we need to love and help to change our hearts. God, I just pray that you would change our hearts to not be focused on ourselves, but to focus on you and the outworking of that to focus on other people. I pray for a shift in our hearts away from ourselves and towards people. I pray for you to reveal to us the way that we care about ourselves in unhealthy ways, in an unmeasured way. I pray for you to reveal to us the ways that we need to stop, the things that we need to stop that are focusing on ourselves and help us to turn towards you and to turn towards our neighbour. Help us to love in a revolutionary way, in a really different way and in a really authentic way. Not because we have to, but because you've changed our hearts and we want to. Amen.